Evening. So as we've already uh, heard, we're going to conclude our Christmas series today, a Christmas series we called uh, Heaven on Earth. We're going to conclude our Christmas series in Revelation. Way back, uh, if you can remember back to the beginning of December, we began right at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. And we looked very carefully at those first few chapters and the announcement of Jesus and the songs of people like Zachariah and Mary. And, uh, and of course, then the birth of Jesus and then those immediate scenes that happened straight after the birth of Jesus. But now we're zooming out of Luke and we're going to zoom into Revelation. Now, you might think that a bit of a strange move, a little bit of a, a, little bit of a, um, a, a turn of events. However, I suppose if you remember at Christmas, we celebrate that Jesus came to earth in Revelation, we read that he will come again. Uh, and also, by the way, I'm hoping, yeah, it'll, it's going to whet your appetite for this, um, for this Revelation series uh, starting in just a couple of weeks. I'm not stealing anyone's thunder. Trust me, there is plenty of thunder in Revelation left. And so I'm not going to, uh, this evening, sort of recap Revelation. Sort of we're dipping our toes uh, dipping our toes into Revelation, right at the end of Revelation. Uh, but of course, you can jump right in in just a few weeks' time. It's true to say, however, that chapter 21 um, draws together this, this wide range of themes, not only from Revelation, but actually from the entire Bible, particularly from the Old Testament. Revelation 21 and 22 is the moment where Jesus is pictured as returning. And hence, you might title this talk heaven on earth, the return of the king. And in these last chapters we see God recreating everything new. And here's a message I want you to walk away with today. This coming kingdom is eternally satisfying. God's coming kingdom is eternally satisfying. And as I've been thinking about that, I have been thinking about that question. Where is your happy place? Where do, you, where do you retreat to, whether, whether physically or just mentally, to, to feel happy? Where do you go to, to escape the pressures and the pains of this life? A place where you feel safe and secure and at home. For me, it's uh, been my uh, grandparents' farm, sort of central New South Wales. And even when I'm there, just, just in my mind, in, in my dreams, I'm happy. Uh, where is your happy place? Um, we, we had a moment to share uh, with each other, uh, but it could be uh, an actual place, couldn't it? There's plenty of places to choose from around here. We live in a beautiful part of the world and a beautiful part of Australia. It could be a relationship so that your happy place is wherever your spouse is or wherever your family is or wherever your grandkids are. Is your happy place perhaps more of an activity? Running, swimming, where do you go to in mind or in body to get this sense of safety and security and belonging and peace and joy and contentment? In fact, that's the, the thought of, of a happy place, right, has become so popular that it seemed to be this sort of a must-have in life's survival kit. Just, just go to your happy place. There's this one problem, of course, isn't there, that our happy places don't always stay happy. 
You know this. Our happy places can become sad places. Disaster strikes. Jobs are lost. Assets can disappear. Marriages split. Families break down. Loved ones pass away. Your body ages, and so the things that you were once able to do, you can do no longer. In the end, those places or those things or those people that we find most comfort in, most joy in, they're short-lived, they're temporary, they're passing, they're susceptible to damage and to loss. And friends, this is why John's vision here in Revelation 21 is just so striking. God's coming kingdom is eternally satisfying. So if you have your Bibles there, keep them open. I'm going to walk through the passage here and I'm going to be pointing out seven reasons why God's coming kingdom is eternally satisfying. Okay? So uh, perhaps even on your phones you might have access uh, to Revelation 21, um, 1 to 8. It's a good idea there. So why is um, God's coming kingdom eternally satisfying? The ultimate happy place? Here are seven reasons. Are you ready? Reason number one. God's coming kingdom is eternally satisfying because there is no more sea. Now before you get up and walk out, those sea lovers out there, allow me to explain. Uh, verse 21, so pardon, chapter 21, verse 1 reads, Then I, this is John, saw a heaven and a new earth, a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Now here, John is describing the, the climax of the apocalypse. Many things may happen before this day, but this day is the climax. And so like the Australian bush, after a, after a bush fire, all creation is radically renewed. The fire decimates everything in its path, but of course the, the trees spring back to life in this wonderful process of renewal and rebirth. And Revelation describes this happening just once for our world, and here we have it in Revelation 21, verse 1. The old has gone and the new has come, except that you'll notice that there is no more sea. Now, if you're a keen fisherman, or if you quite like the beach, you might think, this doesn't sound like my happy place at all. It sounds like the opposite of my happy place. <laughs> Fear not. Uh, in ancient thought, actually, and, and throughout Revelation itself, the sea is understood to represent chaos and evil. And so that there's no more sea like, makes a little more sense, doesn't it? In God's coming kingdom, there's going to be no more chaos, no more evil. God's coming kingdom is eternally satisfying because there'll be no more chaos and no more evil. Okay, reason number two. God's coming kingdom is eternally satisfying because it's a wedding. Read there in verse 2, John sees a city coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a beautiful bride. This is a wedding. Miriam and I got married uh, nine years ago now, a bit over nine years ago now, and I still remember that sense of hope and that sense of anticipation and joy, and this is all in miniature, imperfect version of what will happen on that grand scale perfectly as God's people in God's city the bride is wedded to her husband, Jesus. One author uh, writes of it this way. I quite like this. The, the day of Jesus' return will be a wedding feast and Christians are invited to it not as guests 
but as, but as a bride. None of us will have to sneak in through the back door. We'll be walking up the aisle. It's a nice picture, isn't it? God's coming kingdom is eternally satisfying because it's a wedding. It's a celebration of a union. And what God has joined together, no man will be able to separate. Three, God's coming kingdom is eternally satisfying because, well, God's there. So John hears this loud voice coming from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Or in other words, God has moved into the neighbourhood. And friends, this is one of the greatest verses in the entire Bible because it's the resolution to humanity's greatest problem, separation from God because of sin. And of course, the entire Bible is the story of how God works to restore that relationship. And this vision here is a culmination of that restoration. When my grandparents uh, passed away, my happy place, the farm, I was, I was real shaken. And um, it was forever changed. And, and I'm coming to terms with the fact that uh, the farm wasn't special primarily because of what it was or even where it was, but because of who was there. Like my grandparents. So God's coming to him is eternally satisfying because of who will be there. God, our, our heavenly Father. Number four. God's coming kingdom is eternally satisfying because it isn't susceptible to death or mourning or crying or pain. Verse 4 here is one of the most moving descriptions of heaven. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And these things, don't they, they resonate with every single one of us. We've all had loved ones who have passed away or who soon will pass away. We've all mourned, we've all cried, we've all been in pain. Some of us at this very moment, in this very season of our lives. The loss of a spouse, the loss of a child, the grief over a wayward child, the agony of a diagnosis, the the pain of injury, the distress of mental health, the heartbreak of loneliness, feeling of rejection, the list goes on and on and on. You could add to that list, I'm sure. We long for a reality with, with no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain. And while our life here may be characterised by these things now, friends, there is a time coming when there will be no more. So way back in the beginning of Revelation in chapter 1, Jesus puts his hand on John's shoulder and says, do not be afraid. So to hear God will wipe away our tears. God's coming kingdom is eternally satisfying because it isn't susceptible to death or mourning or crying or pain. This new order here is perfect. Number five, God's coming kingdom is eternally satisfying because it's true. 
So John not only sees a new heaven, a new earth, and a new, this, this new Jerusalem, but in verse 5 there, he also hears a loud voice. And God says, I'm making everything new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And it is a very simple but a very profound realisation. In fact, it's a life-changing realisation to come to that this vision, these words, are actually true. And you may be sitting here today wrestling with this exact thought. You've come along to church every now and then. You, you read your Bible every now and then. But, but is what you're hearing, is what you're reading actually true? Is it, is it true? And Revelation doesn't want us doesn't want to leave us in any doubt whatsoever that what is described here will come to pass. There aren't too many different ways of expressing that. God's coming kingdom is eternally satisfying because it's true. Number six, God's coming kingdom is eternally satisfying because it's complete. And so God says, in, says to John, it is done. I am the Alpha, that's the first, and the Omega, that is the last, the beginning and the end. Gee, there's something really fulfilling when you complete something, isn't there? And God completes, right? When you, when you mow the lawn, this is real sense of satisfaction when you look back on it and it's complete. And there is nothing more frustrating than your mower breaking down halfway. I lose sleep over it <laughs> if the lawn's not, you know, finished. Or perhaps for you, it's finishing those last few pages of that book or, or completing that assignment or, or collecting an entire set of something or finishing that house project. Completing something, finishing something brings this enormous sense of satisfaction. And that is why God's coming kingdom is eternally satisfying because it's complete. God has worked from the very beginning to the very end, and God's kingdom is the completion, the perfect finishing of his work to make everything right once again. God's plan for this world began with creation and it ends with the new creation. He has the first word and he has the final word. And because it's complete, we can have certainty that this is the future that awaits us. Right? If you trust in Jesus, if you're a Christian, then there are no coming amendments. There is no fine print. It is complete. And finally, look at the second half of verse 6 there. God's coming to him is eternally satisfying because it's a free gift. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Here we have the, the gospel of grace, the gift of grace, in, in a nutshell, don't we? Because throughout scripture, water is life. Water is life. And God doesn't say you must do X, Y and Z. He says, I will give without cost. But don't be fooled. He gives without cost. He gives life to us without cost. But it cost him very dearly. So we know that the only way God is able to offer us life, eternal life with him, is for him to have his sent his one and only son to, to die in our place. This water is too dear to be purchased. It's it's 
too precious to be sold. You can't, you can't buy it. You can't sell it. You can only, you can only be given and, and received. Okay, so there you have it. Let me quickly recap for you. Seven reasons why God's coming kingdom is eternally satisfying. One, the ultimate happy place. One, there's no chaos and no evil. Two, it's a wedding celebration. God's actually there. It isn't susceptible to death or mourning or crying or pain. It's true. It's complete. And lastly, and best of all, it's a free gift to those who would receive it. But of course we know that not everyone receives it. And sitting here tonight will be those who have. And sitting here this evening will be those who haven't. And these verses conclude with these with these two groups. The first group is characterised by belief. And so verse 7 reads there, those who are victorious, they'll inherit all of this and I'll be their God and they'll be my children. And in Revelation, those who are victorious, they endure, they, they persevere in their faith. But there's this other group that's characterised by unbelief. And so verse 8 reads, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they'll be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second death, that is the eternal death. And these descriptors here, they resound all the way back through Revelation and they belong to those who are ultimately enemies of God, who remain unrepentant and therefore remain Unforgiven. So which group are you in? Uh, most people who typically come here on a Sunday will identify with that first group who trust in the merits of Jesus. But that does not mean there's room for us to continue to live as we will because, of course, the gospel and the accompanying promise of eternal life for all those who trust in Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit actually transforms us from the inside out. The future promise informs and transforms the present. That is, it should change the way we think. right? It should change the way we speak. It should change the way we act. It should even change the way that we decide what is, what is important and what is not important. Because, you see, sometimes we can trick ourselves into thinking this. We trick ourselves into thinking that if only I knew the future, if only I knew the future then I could really commit to church. Or, or if only I knew the future, then, then I could actually be truly generous. Or, or if only I knew the future, I'd be far less concerned with fill in the blank. You do know the future. And it's time now to have to have the future infiltrate, permeate the present. Revelation 21 and 22 describes the end of the world as we know it and in the end, friends, Jesus wins. Truth be told, it was one long ago as he died and rose again to new life 
And in the preceding chapters here, we read of Jesus defeating evil once and for all. And here he returns to establish his kingdom. And if you were sitting here today and you haven't put your trust in Jesus, then I want to encourage you to begin tonight. Begin with the end in mind. Begin with the end in mind. For Jesus says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And if you're sitting here today as an older Christian, as a, as a perhaps a persecuted Christian, as a mistreated Christian, perhaps just as a weary Christian, just as a tired Christian, we would encourage you to persevere with the end in mind. Jesus wins and he invites those who are victorious, those who persevere in their faith to, to share in this victory. Begin with the end in mind. Persevere with the end in mind. And so that's why one of the reasons the writer of the book of Hebrews encourages us in Hebrews chapter 10, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Why? Because God's coming kingdom is eternally satisfying, the happy place. Some time ago now, uh, well, when my eldest was in uh, kindy, uh, I was driving her to kindy and we got into this discussion, as you do, about heaven. And she saw it in full earnestness. She saw us, oh, Dad, it's taking a long time to go to heaven. And I, I said, oh, sweetie, you don't need to think about, and I stopped mid-sentence, because that is exactly what I want her thinking about. Heaven should be her goal. It should be what she longs for. It shouldn't be uh, the goal of being happy, you know, wherever that is and however you achieve that, uh, or what university you go to or what marks you get or what job you get or the career in which you find yourself honouring God in or how much money you'll earn or whether ever she will ever earn enough to buy a house. I shouldn't care. To have heaven as her goal, it should be what she longs for. And I've got to do everything we can. Miriam and I have got to do everything we can to foster that. Because if she's not getting that message from us, if she's not getting that message from us, that heaven, this, this, is, this, is, this is what you should be longing for, then she's going to pick up, she's going to absorb another message. And that will end in disappointment. Eventually. Sooner or, or later. But of course, there's no end in God's kingdom. And in fact, in many ways, it is just the beginning. And so I realised I used an illustration last week 
um, from uh, C.S. Lewis's Narnia series. I'm going to use another one, so forgive me. <coughs> but C.S. Lewis, in his final chapter of his final book in the Narnia series, he describes it beautifully. He writes this, And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we must truly say that they lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Where is your happy place? Humanity has sought, long sought, a more eternal happy place, a more permanent happy place. Some people have called it utopia. Some people call it heaven. And while for most friends, this, this is what's extraordinary, while for most that this, this remains an elusive reality, a vain hope, for believers, for believers, this is our certain future. And with every passing day, this reality draws nearer and nearer. In Revelation 22, verse 20, Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. And we want to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let me close in prayer. Father, we began two months ago now in this series, Heaven on Earth. And we rejoiced in the birth of your son. And all that his birth, all that his coming means for us. We rejoice that he is the son of God and the son of Adam who bought for us salvation. And today we've remembered that indeed Jesus will come again. And so we pray that your word might dwell in us richly today, this week, this year, and bear much fruit for your glory. Amen.